John Wesley, who was a 1700s preacher in Great Britain, said that the problem of problems is to get Christianity put into practice. John Bunyan um, made a similar statement in his classic writing, The Pilgrim's Progress, when he said that the soul of religion is in the practical part. So practical, everyday, shoe leather, Christian living. That's always been a problem. Knowing the Word of God is one thing. Putting it into practice day in and day out, that's quite another thing. But that constitutes the reason for the writing of the very first book in the New Testament. And that book is the book of James. You say, well, that's not the first book in the New Testament. Well, it's not the first book when you open to the pages of the New Testament, but it was the first book written chronologically in the New Testament. And James writes to people who are under his, his shepherding care. He writes to Jews who have trusted in Christ, but who are dispersed throughout the, the then known world. They call them the diaspora. And he calls them the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And what he tells them in the book of James is that you need to put your faith into practice. You need to consistently translate your belief into your behavior. James speaks of a faith that works, a faith that is seen, a faith that is demonstrated, a faith that gives evidence that you are truly a child of God, a faith that is applied to every aspect of your life. Many consider the book of James probably the most practical book of the New Testament. And as you read it, you discover that, that James really penetrates the heart. It's just a convicting book. I mean, James is the kind of guy that, that listened the last time you had a blow up with your wife, and he knows all about it. Or he's the guy that watches you worship at church, or the fellow worker at your job to see if your life measures up to your testimony. Uh, he's the next door neighbor who watches your response when adversity is striking your family. James is just so practical. And James says, there must be reality in your religion. James has this holy disgust for hypocrisy. Over and over again, James says to the followers of Jesus Christ, put your creed into conduct. Live out your life in a way that honors God and speaks to your neighbor. James focuses on some sins that seem to entangle us as, as Christians and sins that hinder our witness to the world. He addresses things like double-mindedness, you know, being inconsistent in your Christian walk. He talks about envy, lust, unwholesome speech, gossip, slander, complaining, talking too much, anger, prejudice, 
pride, quarreling, prayerlessness, harboring a bitter spirit and judgmental attitudes, going through times of spiritual struggle and the very danger of, of a believer wandering from the truth. And James is very direct. But what he says is true. What he says really hits home. It's the truth, but nothing but the truth, so help you God. And there's truth there that we sense even as we read his words. He answers questions like this. What am I supposed to do as a Christian when I just face one problem after another? It seems like there are times when the troubles never end. It's always something. And how do I handle that temptation that seems to trip me up? The solicitation to do evil. And as a Christian, what is my responsibility to those who are less advantaged as, as I am? And why is there favoritism and prejudice and discrimination in the church? And are those who claim to be Christians but don't seem to live the Christian life, are they really saved? And why are those who teach the Word of God going to be judged more strictly than other believers? Because James says, let not many of you uh, teach, because those who teach will be judged more strictly. And why do I have so much trouble with my tongue? Why, why am I always saying the wrong things? And what does wisdom look like? Wisdom being defined, defined in Scripture as the skill to live life. What does that really look like? And how do we handle problems in the church between two people that, that can't get along? And should a Christian prepare or plan for the future? I mean, didn't Jesus say we're supposed to live one day at a time? And what should be my attitude towards those who mistreat me or who take advantage of me? And what steps should I take when my spiritual tank registers absolutely empty? When there's just nothing left, there's just nothing there. I mean, I, I know Jesus, but the reality is gone. What am I supposed to do? And does prayer really accomplish anything? Is it just a, a spiritual exercise to make me feel good, to let me vent? And what should I do when I see a brother or sister in Christ winding away from the faith? I mean, do I have a spiritual responsibility toward them or do I just have to let them go? You know, there are only five chapters in James. You can read the whole book in about 16 minutes. But in those five chapters, James covers a lot of ground. And in the weeks to come, we're going to journey through James. Um, today we're going to look at just one verse. It'll pick up after that. But today just one verse. Where James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes, scattered among the nations. Uh, the name James is the Greek form of the Hebrew name 
Jacob. And there were four Jameses in the New Testament. There was James, the brother, or technically speaking, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, same mother, but different fathers. The natural son of, of Joseph and Mary, which made him the, the second oldest son in the family. There was Jesus, and then there was James. And then James was followed by another son named Joseph who was followed by another son named Simon, who was followed by another son named Judas. But the name Judas is really the name Judah, except one is in Hebrew, Judah, and one is in Greek, Judas, same name. So there was James, the brother of Jesus. Um, brothers with different fathers, so to speak. And then there's another James. He was the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. You know, you read about James and John repeatedly in, in the New Testament. One of the original 12 disciples, James, the son of Zebedee. There was James, thirdly, the son of Alphaeus. And he was another one of the original 12 disciples of Christ. There were actually two Jameses that were in the, the 12. James, the son of Zebedee, and, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And then lastly, there was a fourth James, who was James, the father of Judas. But not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas, who was also known as Thaddeus in the New Testament. Thaddeus was one of the original disciples of Christ, and his father's name was James. So out of those four Jameses, which James wrote the book of James? Well, it'll be the first one. James, the brother of Jesus. Now, as I said earlier, there were several children in the family of Mary and Joseph, Jesus was the virgin born, the firstborn, the son of Mary, but not the biological son of Joseph. But they had later additions to the family, according to Matthew 13, 35. James, Joseph, also known as Little Joe, <laughs> Simon, but not Simon Peter, that's different. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, also known as Judah, or as we're going to see in a little bit, Jude. Beatles wrote a song about him. And then Jesus had some sisters, plural. We don't know their names. They're not given. So we don't know how many, and we don't know their names. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it talks about Jesus's sisters. So four brothers and multiple unnamed sisters. But there was a time when Jesus's younger brother, James, did not follow Jesus. There was a time when Jesus's younger brother, James, did not see Jesus 
as the long-awaited promised Messiah. In the early years of, of Jesus' public ministry, his brother James would be classified as an unbeliever. Let's take a look at his life as found in the New Testament. And then we'll go to James chapter 1 and verse 1. First, when you read the, the New Testament, you find that James had a delight in Jesus. In John chapter 2, Jesus' mother attended a wedding at Cana of Galilee where Jesus and his disciples were also invited as guests. And it was at that wedding that Jesus did his first recorded miracle and he turned water into wine. And up until then, Jesus' godliness and Jesus' wisdom was on display, but not his miraculous power. This was the first time that Jesus displayed his miraculous power. After the wedding, it says in John chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, Jesus traveled to Capernaum, and it says, with his mother and his brothers. It says, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. It was like a family trip. You know, the family was intact. Patty and I probably rem reminisced too much about the past. We lived in the day, you know, where you didn't have to buckle up your kids. Instead, in the back seat, you made a little fort for them. And you traveled down the road, and they could play, they could read, they could look out, they could do whatever they wanted. But, but they weren't confined to a seat. And we look back at, at those times with just fondness of memory. I remember traveling in Kansas, and you know, Kansas is kind of flat, not a lot to look at, and we'd play games in the car. And one day we were talking about, okay, let's give everybody nicknames. So, Timothy Barrons, TB, what nickname can we give for Timothy Barrons? TB, let's see. And, and then Tom Barrons, okay, we had two T's, Bs. So we had to come up with another. And then there was Jonathan Barron's, JB. His was easy because Jonathan was just, just a lot of fun. And we came up with Jelly Bean, you know, <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, Charity Barron's, our daughter, CB, what did we come up That was Citizen Band. That was also Cherry Blossom. We had a whole bunch of CBs for her. But we'd play games in the car, and it was fun. Um, in those years, the family was close, the family was together, and that's what it was like with Jesus and his brothers, with Mary, going down to Capernaum. It was the family. We're going together. There was oneness. And there's every reason to believe that, that this family was God-centered. It was God-centered first. It was mom-centered second, because by this time Joseph is off the scene and we assume that he had died. So God-centered first, mom-centered second, and family-centered third. Mom and all her boys were 
were traveling together. Nothing like a happy family. Now, I don't remember if this is a rerun, if I told you this story or not. So pardon me if I have, but in thinking about this, one day I got a phone call to go visit somebody, somebody I'd never met, somebody who wanted to talk to a pastor, but somebody who lived miles away from our church. Unfortunately, our church back then in the Portland phone book was the first one under church. So guess who would get a lot of calls? And so I just sensed that I should at least go talk to this guy. So I went home and I told Patty I'm taking no money, just my driver's license. And I told her where I was going. And I said, I'm a little uncomfortable about this, but I think I need to at least go give this guy a hearing. He sensed a spiritual need in his life. He wanted to talk to a pastor. Well, you know, you're not going to say no to that. And so in the car with just my driver's license, I headed miles and miles and miles away to go visit this guy. And sure enough, as soon as I got there, he met me outside. And what did he want? Money. He didn't want to talk spiritual things. He wanted money. And I said, well, I don't have any money. Was I telling him the truth? Yeah. Just had my driver's license. And he was a big boy. And he started backing me down against a brick wall. And I'm going, this is not a good thing. And just then, when this guy was coming at me, a car drives in, just speeding, driving in, and it's Jonathan, son number three. And he jumps out of his car with a tire iron. And right behind him was another car, and it was Tim. How do you think that made me feel as a dad? You know, that's my family. Those are my boys, that's my kids. And I can't help but feel that the family of, of Mary and her sons and her daughters, they were tight, because that was a godly home. We know it was a godly home, home because what kind of a family would God have chosen to see his son raised and nurtured and taught? Joseph, Matthew 1 says, was a righteous man. And, and Mary, Luke tells us, was, was favored by God. This is a great home. And together they raised a great family in the fear of God. And in that kind of family, there's harmony, there's, as the song says, um, there's beauty all around when there's love at home. And I can't help but believe that, that James just delighted in, Ju in Jesus. Can you imagine what a, what a great big brother Jesus would have been? I mean, he was sinless and humble, totally unselfish, 
What a role model he would have been for his family. There was harmony in that home because there was heaven in that home as well. But then there was a turn for the worse. Jesus continued his public ministry and he continued to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near. The, the reign and rule of God was about to, to be seen on this earth. And so he cast out demons. He healed many and various diseases, lepers and the paralyzed and the blind. One day he's a builder in, in Nazareth. And as the eldest brother, he assumed the responsibility of being the head of the home since dad was gone. His job was to make sure the family's needs were cared for. But then, within a relatively short period of time, this eldest brother, my brother Jesus, is being proclaimed by others as being the Messiah? No. As I read my Old Testament, James thought to himself, Messiah is to be a conquering king. He's a mighty warrior. That ain't my brother. He's humble. He's a servant. He's not carrying a sword or riding a white horse. James loved his older brother, but when he heard others proclaiming that Jesus was Messiah, he thought, hey, that's a bit much. James had lived with his brother for years, and yet Jesus did not seem to be the conquering king type. And so we can find his denial of Jesus. On one occasion, Jesus' brothers, including James, said this, and I quote, He's out of his mind. That's what they said in Mark chapter 3. He's out of his mind. He's nuts. On another occasion in John chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, Even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. I mean, who knows what's going on in their minds when they're seeing Jesus do miracles and they're seeing Jesus proclaimed as Messiah, and they're thinking, who is this guy? Where did these powers come from? After all, one does not construct a home one day, and then suddenly the next day you're healing the sick and raising the dead. Something's up here. And so James, along with his other brothers, rejected the claims of Christ for a while. But another dramatic change occurred in the family. And James became a totally different man. James became a very bold follower of Jesus as Messiah. The brother became a believer. The skeptic became a disciple. Which brings us to his discovery of Jesus. From the first chapter of the book of Acts on, after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven, 
we find James is now a forceful follower of Jesus Christ. What happened? What, what brought about that dramatic change? Well, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascended into heaven, it says this in verse 12. Then they, referring to the disciples of Christ, the eleven, because Judas was gone, they returned to Jerusalem from a hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. A Sabbath day was about a kilometer, about 0.6 tenth of a mile. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and there, those present in that room, there was Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, who's also known as Nathaniel in the New Testament, and Matthew, also known as Levi, and then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, also known as Thaddeus, and they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, it says, and the women here refer to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, who were at the tomb at, at the resurrection. So the women were there, and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, along with his brothers. What happened? James was once an unbeliever, he was a skeptic, and now he's at the first prayer meeting at the first church of Jerusalem as a follower of Jesus. What happened? Well, it's no secret what happened. And the New Testament tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, now, brothers, Paul writes, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you want to know if there was a resurrection of, of Christ's body, you can go talk to the eyewitnesses. There's over 500 of them. And then he says in verse 7, And then Jesus appeared to, guess who? James. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that made a believer out of a brother. To James then, and then to us today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrated to James that, that the claims of Christ, that he was the Messiah of God, were absolutely true. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, there's no Christianity. You can bury it. But if there is a resurrection of Jesus, it's the greatest message 
that the world needs to hear. If Christ did rise from the dead, then it explains the transformation of James, the Lord's brother, as well as all the apostles of Christ. His discovery of Jesus. And then there is his devotion to Jesus. You know, back in the book of James, uh, we read James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus. Notice it didn't say James, a brother of Jesus. No. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. James says that he was a servant of God. Okay, get ready. This is the crux of the message this morning. There are several Greek words for servant used in the New Testament, and this ain't one of them. This is not the Greek word for servant, even though they translated it servant. You know what the literal word is? Slave. Doulos. <coughs> Literally, this verse should read, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a servant is someone who can be hired, but not a slave. A slave is one who is owned by another. Now, we know why the translators translated this servant instead of slave. They did so because in the Western culture, what comes to your mind when you think of slave? Well, normally it conjures up pictures of oppression and cruelty and brutality, someone in chains, a, a recipient of a tyrant's whip. But though a slave in the first century could have been owned by a, a wicked man, the slaves in the ancient world could also be owned by, by good men. Righteous men, honorable men, reasonable men. Slaves in that Roman period in which this was written could be doctors, they could be lawyers, they could be teachers, they could be business administrators. You see, the experience of a slave in the first century depended entirely on the, the customs and the, and the character of the slave owner. And so the term slave would not have the same effect in the first century as it does to a 21st century American. But the fact remains, this word in James chapter 1 verse 1 means slave. Now if you have your Bible and you're looking up James 1 and oh, I wonder what my translation says. I only found four translations that actually translated slave. It's in the Old Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's in, of all things, today's Living Translation, which you would not expect. Uh, Caleb, it's in the Message, <laughs> which you would not expect. And it's in 
The newest translation that has come out called the, the Legacy Standard Bible. But it's not in the King James, it's not in the New American Standard, it's not in the Revised Standard, it's not in the English Standard Version, it's not in what we would consider literal translations, except the, the four that I mentioned, and, and of those four, only two are classified as literal translations. It's the word slave. And a slave was in absolute possession of his master. A slave was owned by another and belonged to another. And James says, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A slave lived in total dependence upon his master. He had no property of his own. He had no cares of his own. The master assumed the responsibility of all the slave's needs. He had no agenda of his own. His sole objective was to please his master. A slave owed absolute obedience to his master. The master's word is what mattered. The master's evaluation was the only one that mattered. The master's pleasure was the only thing that mattered. He did not live for himself. He lived for the pleasure of his master. In areas where no direct command was given, he was still to find ways to please his master as best he could. And James was a, a slave. A slave of God. And a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Savior, Messiah, and Master. But you know, when you read the New Testament, uh, James wasn't the only slave. Um, another brother of Jesus wrote a New Testament book, the book of Jude. You know, three Johns, Jude and Revelation, second to the last book of the Bible. Guess how Jude starts out his book? Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. That's how he starts out. <laughs> and that's him. A slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. But brothers James and Jude aren't the only slaves of Jesus Christ. It was Peter. Peter calls himself a slave. John in Revelation chapter 1 calls himself a slave. All the apostles are called slaves in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, slaves of God and slaves of Christ. Timothy in Philippians 1.1 is called a slave. Guess who else is a slave? You are a slave. If you have come to know Jesus as Savior, you've also come to know Him as Lord and you were a slave of God, just like James, and then of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in, in the biblical sense of the term, to be a Christian is equivalent to being a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're equivalent, they're the same, they're synonymous. To me, this is really cool. In the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, you have the new heaven and the new earth. And it talks about 
us as God's slaves. Here's what it says. And there will be no longer any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his slaves will serve him. And when you read Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22, you find the word again and again and again. And it refers to all God's people. We're all slaves. You know, some people are not going to like hearing that. They're thinking, you know, I trust Jesus as my Savior, but I ain't going to be anybody's slave. Can I tell you that if that's your attitude, you haven't come to know Jesus yet? Because when you really come to know Jesus, He said, My sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. So true saving faith means that you also follow Christ. And one way of saying that in New Testament terms is that you're a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're his property. Scripture says that we were bought at a price. His own blood that was shed for us. We are owned by him. We're at his disposal. And he is worthy of unquestioned obedience. He is worthy of absolute submission. He is worthy of complete devotion and of hearts of gratefulness and love. A true believer seeks to please him above anything else. His word is our final authority. And so to be a Christian means to be a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And strangely enough, one of the paradoxes of Scripture is that it's the only slavery that actually sets you free. It sets you free to be what God has created you to be. It, it sets you free from the fear of tomorrow, from the guilt of the past. It sets you free to live your life without worry because the Master is responsible for all your needs. And He's my Master. He's going to take care of me. You know, a British aristocrat said, I, I want the Lord to be my constitutional king. I don't want him to be my prime minister. Well, she was quite aware that in Great Britain, a constitutional king is only a figurehead. And that it's the prime minister who actually wields the power to govern. And, and many people in the same way want Jesus just to be a figurehead. They don't want him to be their master. They don't want him to govern their lives. But it can't be done if you're a true believer. He is our master, and we are a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an old song that, that we used to sing. It comes to my mind quite regularly. It, and, and the first verse goes like this, King of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. And that's the heart of a true believer. You're letting him be king. 
Well, that brings us to James's death for Christ. James could have um, attempted a claim to fame. I'm the brother of Jesus. But he didn't. It would have been true. But instead he humbly called himself a slave. And as the years went by, he actually laid down his life for Christ. He was a martyr. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the Jewish high priest in 62 AD assembled the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, and brought before it the brother of Jesus, who is called James and some others, and delivered them to be stoned. Why? Well, because they said Jesus was Messiah. According to the writings of the early church fathers, the first century church called him James the Just, meaning he was a righteous man. Uh, church history tells us that the, the common people of Jerusalem disloved him because he especially gave attention to the poor, the legitimate poor. He was a kind and compassionate man. Uh, one early church father tells us that James's knees became hard like a camel's knees because he spent so much time in the temple in Jerusalem praying for the forgiveness of the people. He was a man of holiness, a man of prayer, a man of power. The Apostle Paul called him a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2. And Luke records for us that in the Jerusalem church that James actually had a higher place of authority than did Peter and John. He was a leader of leaders. James became great in the church because he had a servant's heart. He was a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. That's the kind of man who wrote the epistle that bears his name. And that's the kind of man that does some great things for God. James became a, a slave for Jesus Christ and a servant to men. And James practiced what he preached. He put his creed into conduct. He put his belief into behavior. He had a faith that worked. We started this morning by talking about a guy named John Wesley. We'll conclude with him. John Wesley um, kind of shook up the church of his day because he would preach outside the church buildings. Open-air preaching began in the contemporary world with John Wesley, and he would go wherever. And he went to the poorer section of, of London to preach, and at the back of the crowd were two men who were ready not only to disrupt the meeting, but they were going to throw rocks at Wesley, physically attack him. But as they, they got closer and closer to Wesley, Wesley <laughs> spoke with such power and conviction and compassion that uh, these hecklers kind of stopped short of their plan and just listened. And one of the men said, this, this ain't a man, Bill. <laughs> he ain't a man. 
And both of the men dropped their rocks and their hearts were softened as they listened to the word of God being preached. And when Wesley was done, he, he walked through the crowd and he walked up to these two men and he put his hand on their shoulder, that's all. And he said, God bless you guys. And he kept walking. And as he disappeared out of their sight, one of the men said to the other, He's a man, Bill. He's a man, but he's a man like God. Well, that was James. He was a man like God. He was a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be said of us. It's an honor to be the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ who owns us, who purchases by his blood and is worthy of our absolute unconditional obedience because he's a savior and a Lord who can be trusted. And our Father, we just thank you for, for James the transitions that took place in his life until he finally bowed his knee to his Savior, his Messiah, his Lord, and saw that in Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. And that Jesus was worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be followed, and worthy to be proclaimed. And Father, may it be said of us that we are slaves of God, glad of it, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, for by being their slaves, we have found true freedom. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you would resonate with that message and say, listen, I, I know I've wanted Jesus to be my Savior, but I'm not sure that I'm His slave. And if that's you this morning and you want to make that recommitment in your heart and life or that first time commitment, you can do that right where you're at and just ask Jesus. I want to be your slave. Just surrender. Um, if you make a commitment, you want to be baptized, let us know.